0: You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast.
1: This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join today at patreon.com slash mission log.
0: Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast, Episode 403, Inquisition.
2: Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion.
1: And I'm Norman Lau.
2: Each week on Mission Log, we peel back the mysterious
1: layers of an episode of Star Trek to find out what's really making it tick.
2: This week, Inquisition. What a show! Inquisition. Here we go. We know you're wishing that we'd go away
1: but inquisitions here and it's here to stay and mission log for that matter and that means our contact information followed by trivia then on with the tor i mean show on with the show so mission log is a conversation about star trek and that's why we want to hear from you use mission log pod to give us a like and a share on facebook and twitter then follow and rate us at apple podcasts to help others find the show you can call us on skype at mission log pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at com and remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now with the Torch—I mean, trivia! With the trivia! Because he is also here to stay. Here is John Champion.
2: Well, thank you, Torquemada. Today's show, Inquisition, was written by Bradley Thompson and David Weddle, and you remember these guys, Iris Stephen Bear's friend and his friend, and they had a fun idea for this episode. Basically, satirizing bureaucracy and how it's still a thing in the 24th century. They liked the idea of messing with Bashir, but making it a very mundane problem. They, they kept saying the equivalent of getting stuck at the DMV. Mm. But that's not where it went, especially once Ira took hold of the idea. It went dark. It was seen as a way to explore a very unsavory idea about the Federation. Now, it was directed by Michael Dorn. Remember that Michael debuted his directing skills in the DS9 episode, In the Cards, he has just one more episode in this series under his credit as director, and then one more on Enterprise, and a few other non-Trek shows on his resume. He, of course, keeps working as an actor. Now, I love this little bit of trivia, that there are no more establishing exterior shots once the simulation has begun. And, uh, of course, you'll know exactly what we're talking about when we get through the story. But uh, think about this if you just rewatch the episode. Normally, the style on the show is you come in from a break, and you have an establishing shot of where you are. Exterior of Deep Space Nine, exterior of a Jim Hadar ship, exterior of the Defiant. But they made a decision to keep this episode detached from the reality of where Bashir is, which makes perfect sense and it also keeps the viewers a little disoriented too now let's talk about guest stars of course it's great to see jeffrey combs back as sort of Yun, and we have two sort of starfleet officers there's lieutenant chandler played by samantha mudd not a long list of on-screen camera credits for samantha and this episode falls toward the end of that list She appeared on an episode of the 1990s revival of Mike Hammer and a few small films in the early 2000s. Joining her is Benjamin Brown as Ensign Kagan. Benjamin has been all over the place, literally, as a comedian, actor, stage performer, and artistic director. In addition to guest roles and starring in Disney's Omba Mokambo, In the 90s, he produced and starred in the nature documentary series Safari Tracks, starting in 2005. And that brings us to a new character, Sloane. Ira and a few others on staff knew this was a pivotal role and wanted someone with authority and believability. They thought of Martin Sheen, which, yeah, would have also been awesome. But instead, they cast William Sadler. And this is one of those cases where the producers knew they wanted to cast a favorite, someone who brought the right levels of professional and sinister to the role. Surprise, William is a longtime stage actor, perfect to fit in with the DS9 cast, but come on, you know him from Bill and Ted's bogus journey, he's death- also, Die Hard 2, The Shawshank Redemption. He was on the new Hawaii 5 He was President Ellis in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Ooh, ooh, and Tales of the Crypt, Demon Knight, and the TV series Tales of the Crypt. Just so many good roles.
0: Do you know why it's always a surprise to see this episode of Deep Space Nine dubbed in too Spanish? Stick around for the answer.
1: Prologue, it's hard to keep your travel plans a secret on Deep Space Nine as Dr. Bashir, while burning the respective midnight oil and trying to finish a few projects before he leaves for a medical conference at Casperia Prime, is interrupted by a very sarcastic Odo who teases him about the luxuries of medical conference destinations. While suffering Odo's barbs, Chief O'Brien enters favoring a dislocated shoulder that he hurt, again, whilst hollow kayaking. Sometime later, the computer alerts Dr. Bashir at 0700 hours, but he's surprisingly groggy. Well, nothing a few ractogenos can't cure. However, knowing he's departing for his conference this morning, Julian drags himself out of bed, stuffs a stack of pads in his shoulder bag, and leaves Kukalaka in charge to keep the home fires burning. However, his travel plans are interrupted by Captain Sisko over the station intercom, ordering for all senior officers to report to Ops. As Julian arrives in Ops, he, along with his fellow senior officers, observed that Sisko was in his office and behind closed doors with a very official-looking Starfleet officer. As the captain and his ominous guest emerge from Sisko's office, he addresses his senior staff by introducing Deputy Director Sloan of Starfleet Internal Affairs and his cadre of Starfleet Security. Starfleet Internal Affairs believes that an officer has been covertly sending sensitive information to the Dominion and has constituted a major security breach on DS9. It is Sloane's obligation to investigate the cause of this security breach and has confined all of the senior staff to quarters and temporarily suspended them from active duty. Oh, and he's taken the authority, I mean liberty, of canceling Julian's trip to the medical conference. Act 1. Sequestered in his quarters and peckish for some breakfast, Julian orders up some hot buttered scones, MOBA jam, and red leaf tea. Unfortunately, his replicator is strangely offline. And while he unpacks his shoulder bag, his stylus falls out and rolls underneath a sofa. While trying to dig it out, security officer Chandler arrives to escort him to see Director Sloan. Making their way to the wardroom, they are nearly run over by a phaser rifle-toting security officer, but nothing Julian needs concerned about. In the wardroom, a very nonchalant Director Sloan greets Dr. Bashir, sits casually, and asks him a few questions, such as his capture and imprisonment by the Dominion, and his most recent developments with three genetically enhanced humans with whom Julian was able to build a rapport. The interrogation was strangely brief and non-invasive. As Bashir is dismissed, Director Sloan even accommodates Julian's very specific breakfast order to be delivered to his quarters explaining that the replicators were taken offline just in case they were used as a means to escape. When Dr. Bashir's meal arrives, instead of tucking into a plate of hot buttered scones with Moba jam, his appetite is put off by a plate of fresh gawk, intended for wharf. Julian senses something amiss and surveys his quarters, fixating on Kukalaka sitting upright earlier and now laying on his side, Suddenly Miles appears on Julian's console and warns him that Sloan has just interrogated him for two hours, and specifically about Julian himself. The covert transmission abruptly ends just as Chandler arrives to escort Dr. Bashir back to Director Sloan. Act 2. Back in the wardroom, the atmosphere has changed and Director Sloan is no longer as patient nor accommodating as he was previously. His tone is sharper... And his attitude towards Dr. Bashir is more aggressive as he continuously bombards Julian with questions about his incarceration with the Dominion at Internment Camp 371, even using General Martok's personal logs to contradict whatever Bashir admitted, since they were incarcerated together, even if for a brief time. Julian reacts in responds to Sloan's heated accusations with calm and clarity, and Sloane uses Julian's aloof attitude as the perfect time to accuse him of being broken by the dominion and suffering from engrammatic disassociation, which Sloan describes as the theory of if a person's mind is sufficiently disciplined, he'd be capable of compartmentalizing contradictory information, believing one thing while doing another. Sloan believes that Bashir's genetically enhanced mind is capable of such conditioning, and the Dominion decided to take advantage of that as well. Julian is beside himself and cannot believe that he could have become a spy against his own people, yet Sloan aggressively hangs this accusation around Bashir's neck like an albatross, along with actual restraints on Bashir's wrists as he's escorted from the wardroom and paraded across the promenade until finally stripped of his combat as well as his dignity and placed in a holding cell. Act 3. Dr. Bashir cools in his holding cell as Captain Sisko arrives for a private conversation. And, after encountering some resistance to his visit, Sisko clarifies his position as the highest command authority on Deep Space Nine towards both Security Officer Chandler and Director Sloan, furthermore dictating to them that he will visit Dr. Bashir whenever it suits him, if only to make sure his rights aren't being violated, especially by internal affairs. However, just as Sloan arrived, he overheard what Sisko told Bashir and confirmed that it is true that his son was in fact killed by the Dominion as a result of information that Bashir relayed to them as their spy. Back in the wardroom, Sloan's investigation continues as he digs deeper and more ruthlessly into Julian's genetically engineered past and his attitude towards those who shared similar dispositions, such as the Jem'Hadar that he tried to save on Bopak Three the cadre who were suffering from ketocell white withdrawal. Even as Julian defends his actions citing medical obligation, Sloan bullies him into another corner, and this time, about having passed along classified intelligence to three genetically enhanced misfits whose talents for statistical probability influenced Julian's recommendation to Sisko to surrender to the Dominion in order to save billions of lives. Sisko objects to all of this evidence to be circumstantial, and in doing so, Sloan goes for Bachir's juggler and outlines a pattern of behavior based solely on lies. Lies that concealed Julian's genetic enhancements. Lies that allowed him to become a doctor, an officer, the medical authority on Deep Space Nine, and to Sloan's point, to what end? Exhausted and defeated, Julian even admits that even before his secret was found out, he wasn't even sure if he would have told Sisko the truth about his genetic enhancements. Later in the brig, trying to put the past in the past, Sisko's faith in Julian's innocence is wavering, as he tries to delicately explain that he believes Julian, but what is actually driving the truth behind what Julian believes, and did he in fact suffer some type of brainwashing at the hands of the Dominion at internment camp 371? Sisko then leaves Julian to catch up on some much-needed rest,
2: but no!
1: Sloane visits shortly thereafter and offers Julian a plea bargain... And a pad to confess his transgressions, and as soon as Bashir tells Sloane to shove that pad where the orbs don't shine, he is beamed off the station and aboard what seems to be a Cardassian ship, with a very familiar Vorta there to greet him and welcome Bashir home. Act Four. After a brief reunion of sorts, and after examining Bashir to see if he was treated humanely by his interrogators. The Vorta Wayun debriefs Bashir as he has so many times before, except that Bashir remembers none of those supposed previous experiences. Wayun explains that Bashir suffers the same affliction every time he returns home from the field, periods of denial, of anger, confusion, and finally, eventually Bashir remembers that he is in fact a dominion spy who at one time fell in with his once former enemies because the loss of lives at the hand of Cisco and the Federation would be too much for his Hippocratic Oath trained conscience to bear. In trying to reestablish confidence in their relationship as operative and confidant, Wayun literally sweetens the deal with Bashir and tries to ply him with hot buttered scones, MOBA jam, and red leaf tea, the same meal that Bashir has been asking for ever since Sloane arrived on the station. Hmm. As Wayune presses Bashir even further, it just galvanizes his resolve and his certainty that he's not a Dominion spy, a confession that both Wayune and Sloane want Bashir to admit. But why both of them? Unless they're working together, and even so, to what end? Stunned by his revelation, Bashir is unable to act on the matter, as the Defiant arrives on the scene with photon torpedoes at the ready, while Worf and Kira materialize and escape with Bashir back to the Defiant, where he is met by a very cold, untrusting, and accusatory crew of supposed friends. Even the chief shrugs Julian's hand off his shoulder, his injured shoulder, that is. Julian pieces the inconsistencies together and declares that none of this is real. Suddenly, the Defiant's bridge disappears, and all that remains is a grid-patterned room occupied by three men in black uniforms, and standing front and center of those men is Sloan. Act 5. Before Julian realizes what is happening, Sloan orders one of his men, armed with a medical device, to extract a neural implant from behind Bashir's right ear, a procedure the doctor reserves for himself. Once Sloan scans the chip for the information that confirms Bashir's true and unwavering loyalty to the Federation— Sloan reveals who they are and why they put Bashir through this demented charade. Sloan confesses that he isn't from Starfleet internal investigations. Far from it. In fact, he and the men flanking him belong to an organization that doesn't officially exist. An organization called Section 31, created at the birth of the Federation Charter and charged with defending the security of the Federation from all enemies, both internally and externally, by any means necessary. Sloan's mission was not only to prove that Dr. Bashir wasn't a Dominion spy, but to try and bring him and his genetically engineered intellect into the organization, because, as Sloan explains, someone like Bashir, one who has the affinity towards espionage, who has the mental ability to compartmentalize information, and one who can withstand the rigors of interrogation, that person would be a vital member to Section 31 and its mission. Bashir refuses outright and curses them as those who directly oppose the tenets of what the Federation stands for. Naturally disappointed by Bashir's decision, Sloan drugs the doctor and returns him to Deep Space Nine. Back in the company of his friends on the station, it is clear that Julian was abducted by Section 31 on his way to the conference. That way, no one would know he was missing. Kira adds that Section 31 has access to transporter technology that cannot be traced, which only adds to their concerns about this clandestine organization deep within the Federation. Sisko claims that no matter how hard he has searched, there is no official record of Section 31. However, Starfleet didn't disavow them either. Odo points out that Section 31 is no different than the Romulans' Talshiar or the Cardassians' Obsidian Order. However, Bashir posits the question, but what does that say about us? When push comes to shove are we willing to sacrifice our principles in order to survive? Well, it seems that Julian will eventually have his chance to play at spy as Cisco orders him to join Section 31 whenever Mr. Sloan decides to reappear and extend the invitation to Bashir, Julian Bashir. The end.
2: I have to say, in an episode like this, you know that well, particularly on the rewatch. You know that the uh, the opening teaser has to set up some little clues of things that you'll yeah you know, have a bit of payoff later. And there's no B plot here, which I really appreciate because how could you? But the opening's a little weird because I like the characters are themselves, but. Odo, it just feels like he's there to cast dispersions, <laughs> and I know that's straight up that he, trolling, man. He is, he is. He, he just <laughs> like I'm going to go from my security office up to the infirmary, so I can just ask questions about Bashir's conference. Okay, and, and by the way, yes, it is perfectly okay. I think for professional conferences to be held in nice places, that's fine. But then Odo has this weird judgmental aside to O'Brien, like, "Let me guess, you dislocated your shoulder." Like, <laughs> why, okay, look, I mean, Odo, I know you're not a doctor, but please work on the bedside manner. Like, is that the Seriously? first thing you say? Like, did you just stand outside the infirmary and wait for people to come in so you can judge them about how they got injured? <laughs> you know? that's It was very strange, but funny. I
1: think Odo needed to take a long, long, long walk around the promenade just to, I don't know, get some fresh air, if there was such a thing Yeah, on yeah
2: the yeah, yeah, some fresh recirculated air. Yeah.
1: But here's something that kind of bugged me about what happened to the chief. Okay, so mm-hmm. it seems like he has done this and has injured himself several times. So Dr. Bashir actually uses, like, old-fashioned traction to mm-hmm. yank his arm back into place.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: So with all of the medical technology that they have at their disposal, why mm-hmm. not just repair your shoulder? And look... People can, you know what, I'm not being hypocritical about that. I have had two shoulder surgeries. I've had a ridiculous amount of shoulder dislocations with, you know, sword play and martial arts and things of that nature. And believe me, shoulder pain Mm -hmm. is horrible. So, Chief, use 24th century technology. Which is covered by your insurance, and get your shoulder fixed.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. That's <laughs> exactly. That, that's a good plan. Yeah, I mean, at that point, really, they, they could do uh, Dr. Bashir could beam that shoulder out and beam it back, and I'm sure he'd be fine. Like, there are many, many techniques available to him. Yeah. I do want to point out the chief has a space jacket um, when he comes in. Very, very cool.
1: I like the attention to detail in Sloan's rank pips. Because there's this really thin metal bar as if this is a different agency, which it is you know because yeah. his hologram in that particular part of the story had the intelligence agency pips and right the bar to it right obviously section thirty one wouldn't have anything, yeah, any designation, except that for that other show,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. We're back to our usual thing. So many pads. And I love Dr. Bashir saying, download this to pad F7. How about look, download them all to one pad, use the table of contents. You use a folder. You could do that. But if that's true then then he wouldn't have
1: all those pads to stuff in his shoulder bag, which is still a thing. And I love mm. shoulder bags. Yeah. Very
2: fashionable. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And and I do like actually he has a vintage one and it's not just like that cylindrical hard shell duffel like that that is definitely a space duffel bag that they have on TNG sure and we see yeah. it a little bit on DS9 but I, I like that Bashir has something that's aged it's a little lived in you know um, space duffel. it is it's a space stuffle um i i just came up with a brand new idea that i'm going to float out there because i saw the problem that bashir had with his stylus you know rolling uh on the floor and under the couch all right go with me on this a magnetic attachment for the stylus that you use with your pad that just seems like a logic front door yeah shut get out look i'm just using logic it seems like a next step okay Go with that.
1: I don't know. You're reaching, I think.
2: All right. Speaking of reaching, uh, I know that this
1: whole process was a simulation of the stylus, first of all, yes, not having a magnetic connection to his pad, but secondly, Mm -hmm. falling out of his bag and then rolling underneath the sofa because why?
2: Yeah. Where where are we going with this? Yeah, because we already made the point with the teddy bear. We made the point with the pad being out of place that it right. just seems weird. It's like, okay, they didn't look under the couch because why yeah. would they? Yeah.
1: It's a weird thing. I thought they were going to try and bring up something like, oh, are you looking for some type of bug, you know, or some type of listening device?
2: Right, 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 right. But ah, it did not really work out that way. There yeah, we go. I, um, I will have to say look, scones, jam, and tea cannot argue there. Good call. I appreciate that. The gach, just worms. Plate of worms. So looking uh, uh, alive and healthy. And surprisingly, they have a little printed name card on that food delivery tray. That that was a, an interesting choice. When everything is on a pad, everything like you never really see anything printed. Uh, except, of course, Jake Cisco in there writing longhand on stuff. Uh, Maybe that was a way to work Jake into this episode. (laughs) He's Uh, he's the guy handwriting the name cards of the trays. It was an elegant little touch. Um, I do have
1: to say something about when when Julian puts the cover back on the gawk. There was a little bitty bit of worm that was still wiggling around. (gasps) Oh, no, was there? yeah i'm there? like oh, oh, oh that
0: one's gonna
2: die oh <laughs> live live creatures on set that's the problem because i i noticed like when weyoun lifted up the the uh cover and you see the scones like some of that jam is kind of stuck to the uh, uh stuck to the top that little dome there uh, but it was just like yeah you got a lot of extra jam your lucky day bashir that's so, right. So, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, there is a, uh, a life lesson here. Uh, you know, we, we do have like life lessons from uh, Commodore Decker and, uh, you know, lots of other characters in Star Trek. Here's a life lesson from Mr. Sloan if you want to look cool and intimidating, always be doing something else while the person that you are totally expecting comes in the room. And then wait a moment before even acknowledging or addressing them. That That is how you get the upper hand. Mm-hmm. You also get the upper hand when your
1: guard enters the room before you call them. So mm. that is a thing.
2: Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Um,
1: yeah. You know, it's funny, though. With somebody that is so, I guess, uh, with so much gravitas and presence as an actor that, that Bill Sadler has, mm-hmm. it's almost hard to not pay attention to something, whether it is or is not happening. It's Something's always going on with somebody like him. It's like watching Brad Dorif, right? It, there's yeah. always something behind his eyes, something behind his smile. Even if there isn't even any significant dialogue, something is about to happen. Yeah. And here's one thing that really, really did bug me, though. And I know that we're going back to it being a simulation, but as it's unfolding in real time, I had a hard time accepting that Starfleet even if it's the Starfleet investigations, mm-hmm. would publicly humiliate an officer of the station in front of all of those people, some of which are probably his patients. I mean, isn't there decorum in Starfleet anymore?
2: Yeah, right. No, I, I, I thought of that too, and that, that was way out of line. And it, it, it seems like even for Bashir, he would be questioning, like, why exactly are we doing this? Yeah, yeah. It, it's a bit strange. Now, it, it, it's funny, Sloan acts surprised, like he's using this as his evidence, that Julian and the others could break out of prison by fashioning the communicator out of life support parts. <laughs> Dude, haven't you watched Star Trek? That's all they do, is they tech the tech. So that, that is totally within the realm of reason. Um, by the way, it does seem that Sloan has watched The Manchurian Candidate, though. So uh, he he somehow missed Star Trek, but he did see the Manchurian Candidate. So that's good. Also, his logic here, prove you're not a spy. Uh, You know, the the guy who should know that you can't prove a negative, but uh, definitely another way to get the upper hand there. And I will say this, you know, that uh, people in Section 31, Sloane in particular, they have to be really good actors, it's not just like they're in the spy business, but they, they have to put on a show. They're putting on a performance mm-hmm. with Hollow Sweet characters in front of a real person. So think about it like Sloan talking to Hollow Cisco in front of Bashir while Bashir's in the brig. And, and those Hollow characters have to be well programmed to not give up the game. Right. That, that just That is an extraordinary amount of programming. Except for that one detail. <laughs> except, <laughs> except for that, that one detail that one detail yeah I, I, I do like all the internal story references that you uh, pointed out you know it's not important that you've seen or know all the specifics of those episodes but it helps the continuity of this universe so that that's uh, a cool little bit genetic alterations
1: no matter how hard you try they will never be as buried in the past or present as you may think because mm. that stuff will just get sussed out the truth will always catch up with you. As it did in this episode. As
2: it will, yes, definitely. Yeah. Oh, oh, by the way, I, I mentioned uh the, the logic and uh the, the lack thereof in Sloan's argument. Sloan can only make a circumstantial case about Bashir because Bashir is so good at hiding his tracks. <laughs> and, and, and the holodeck version of Cisco says that's a circular argument and you know it. I I, I right. love I love that we're getting a lesson in logic and argumentation here. But we're getting it from Holodeck Cisco. Uh, that's just so good. I felt like there was this
1: good cop, bad cop type of interrogation that was going on with Cisco being the good cop, yeah. and you know, Sloan being the bad cop. Because ever since like Sloan arrived, his attitude just kind of ramped up over every single other appearance. Like the first time, he was like, "Hey, Julian, what's up, man? I just want to ask you a few questions too. I'm going to like." throw you behind bars and lock away anything that's left after our interrogation to now he's like you are a traitor and a murderer you know like wow right but Cisco the entire time is like hey 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 hold on man Yeah. You know, like, uh, I don't think that you're actually talking facts. You're talking crazy talk here.
2: Right. Uh, Intense, intense. Oh, I I like that you pointed this out in the recap. Uh, You can take that confession and throw it out the nearest airlock. Uh, Since it's Star Trek, that is a great line. I'm going to assume that if this were not Star Trek, that euphemism would be a different one. For sure. (laughs) and look, I just got to point out, because I feel like I always have to, you know you're in for a good time when it's Jeffrey Combs as Weyun, even if it's Holodeck Weyun. fine. And I have to hand it to him, he's wrong, but for all the right reasons. Like, he appeals to Bashir's sense of compassion for healing people and preventing further harm. Uh, seeing, saying that they didn't torture him just helped him to see another perspective. That was a fantastic fascinating bit of dialogue totally fit in yeah. character and then in retrospect and the rewatch when you know what's actually happening totally fits in the logic of the piece so good yeah
1: yeah and I think that it was a smart line of writing there because Wayun has always been about protocol and you know about the uh, diplomacy at at least at first blush you know like are you okay is there anything I can get you are we all friends here and yeah. now we're gonna get into the the heart of the subject and this is yeah. where the dynamic changed from good cop with Cisco, bad cop with Sloan, and now you have kind of ambivalent cop with
2: Yun. Oh, yeah. So it's playing with
1: every single dimension, three dimensions, if you will. Yeah. Chess, if you will, John. Ooh,
2: ooh, wait, wait. Chess, but in three dimensions instead of two? That sounds like space chess. Yeah.
1: It is space chess. And it's actually actually lined with Spectratech paper for that very special holodeck look, holographic look. Yes. But I mean, you know, it, it, it kind of keeps Bashir off balance, right? Because I don't know who to trust. Do I trust Cisco, who's kind of on my side? I can't mm-hmm. obviously trust Sloan. Way well, Yun's making a pretty good case, and he brought me food. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> right. It's amazing. Uh, and speaking of food, one of my favorite lines in the episode you always reintegrate better on a full stomach. Uh, such yeah. truth from Wei Yun, I know I do. So, uh, I can believe it, and then and another line there. Do you remember when I first offered you scones back at the camp? I mean, it it was it was seductive. That was a seductive, great line read. Great choice there as an actor again, and and his physicality in that scene is just incredible. The little details of how how Wayun touches objects and looks at them and looks at the people is great. Oh, by the way, do we? I guess we kind of establish here, Section Thirty-One. Are they traveling in a cloaked ship and with undetectable transporter technology? I mean, we know about the undetectable transporter—that that's Kira's assessment. But then, transported to where? I guess a, a, an undetectable ship, a cloaked ship. That's so. That that's a thing that they have. But I am going to say this. I, I think. Look, this is our first meeting of Section Thirty-One. I think there's a big flaw in their recruitment techniques. So if they go around finding candidates this way, and then those candidates shocked report it to their friends and colleagues, how does section 31 stay secret? Because all these people do is talk about it. Hey, we're going to talk to you, Bashir. We're going to basically psychologically torture you and then ask you if you want to be a member of our club. And when you reasonably say no, You're going to go tell it to six people, (laughs) at least one of whom will start to question Starfleet about it. John, 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 Mm
1: John, John. This is nothing that you should lose sleep over. I certainly won't. Oh, by the way. Because everything is sexier in black, didn't those mm-hmm. Section 31 uniforms, the black uniforms, look very similar in cut and style to the Con era Monster Maroons? Because they had that really nice wide flap that just fashioned right over the shoulder, underneath the shoulder, where the epaulet would have actually cl- yeah. like clicked in. Yeah. So I thought it was like, is that a design-conscious choice, or was that just coincidence?
2: Uh, Well, I can tell you that Ira went to uh, Bob Blackman, designer on the show, and just said we need something black and severe and almost Nazi-esque. So Bob Blackman was like, okay, boom, leather, flaps, it's rigid, that's what you get.
0: Why is the Spanish dub of this episode always a surprise? Because nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. I'll just light myself out to fetch the comfy chair.
2: We'll get right back to Inquisition, but first a few words from our sponsors this week.
1: And our sponsors are actually the people who listen to us and support us. Our sponsor are the Patreon listeners that have subscribed to listen to us and support us through Patreon, which has been growing tremendously over the last few months because we have started something very special for our Patreon listeners, John. And you know what that is.
2: I do know what that is. So I have been having, look, can't speak for you, but maybe I will in this case. We have been having the best time with our Patreon supporters lately uh, with a couple of new features. So first of all, the Mission Log Discord is a blast. All day, every day, we're in there talking about track, talking about collectibles, talking about food, and just getting to know each other as friends. And we also are doing live talkback shows Thursday afternoons time and date TBD, sometimes subject to change, about the episodes that came out that day. So Mission Log releases, and then Norman and I are free there to talk about the morals, meanings, messages that we brought up in the episode. It has been amazing to get that in-the-moment feedback and carry on the conversation with our listeners.
1: So if you're new to the show, listening to us from some other recommendation to come and listen to Mission Log please join us and check out our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash mission log and see all the different tiers and all the offerings that we have for our listeners. For the lowest tier offering, you can join us on Discord, and then you can see if you would like to support us even more after that. But I can guarantee you this, you will have an excellent time with the community of people who are so very special to us that have built this incredible group of Star Trek fans.
2: All right, so again, that address is patreon.com slash mission log, and we cannot wait to welcome you there.
1: Comedians, actors, and Star Trek superfans, Paul F. Tompkins and Tawny Newsom, are back for Season 2 of Star Trek The Pod
2: Directive. You know, that is no lie, Norman. That's what I like about them, that they are comedians. They are actors. I mean, Tawny is right there on Lower Decks, And they are Star Trek fans, and they are hosts of the Pod Directive. This season, you can journey even further behind the scenes with Tawny and Paul, exploring Star Trek's influence on our lives. Guests come from all over the map, Trek icons and luminaries like Michelle Yeoh to uh, Lower Dex's Jack Quaid and... Even more guests, you just have to see the list to believe it, and they all share one thing in common, their love of Star Trek. So episodes go anywhere from hilarious interviews to first moments with Trek to really deep and introspective conversations about society, family, values, always focusing on the importance of Star Trek and its amazing impact in the world.
1: So run, don't walk, and listen now to Star Trek The Pod Directive on Apple Podcasts and never miss an episode.
2: Live long and podcast. I I hinted at this uh, a few moments ago about the performance aspect of being in the holodeck. Like It's not just about the... The, the creations that are around you, but you actually have to be the actor in this case to keep everything going. Um, and it just, it, it proves that holodecks have to be super powerful. I mean, holodecks have to be crazy powerful. Like, internal systems work, You've got food, you've got interactive characters, you've got incredible details. I thought it was clever that the replicator is offline, so Bashir couldn't fashion some sort of communicator or weapon. Like that, that absolutely makes sense. But then his comm panel comes alive with the face of O'Brien on the other end, and then he has to have a conversation with that version of O'Brien that's trying to convince him to watch his back. When he goes back in to see Sloan, which in, respect, in retrospect is all just part of the ruse anyway. That is a huge amount of programming. And I was always really interested in my rewatches to see if I could tell early on where they were leaving any hint at all that DS9, after Bashir has woken up early and, and things aren't real, if I could tell like just from the character perspective or detailed perspective, you really can't. I mean, I think if you could say anything in that comms discussion with uh, miles, it's a little stiff, but then it's, you know, miles looking into a camera on the other side of the station in theory, you know? Right. right. So um, I thought all that played out very well, but again, it just, it, it reinforces how good that holodeck has to be.
1: Well, I mean, let's uh let's not forget something that I I think that was really like intricately weaved throughout the course of this program. In this simulation, they actually had to to prove that Cisco was starting to wane in his loyalty and support for Bashir, so that Cisco was very stalwart at the very beginning, you know, he was dressing down Chandler, he was dressing down Sloan saying I will talk to my man i am the authority on this station to the second interrogation yeah you know he made some questionable choices i get that but he fessed up so we're all good to one the defiant he's like you betrayed us you lied to us get him off my bridge that must have been totally unsettling but think about what it psychologically did to Bashir. so i think that uh it's it's um insidious
2: yeah, I, I think that's a
1: great right word. I,
2: I think that is a great word. It's probably a word that shows up in my notes later <laughs> because I, I mean, there's something. There are so many layers of psychological torture that you could pick apart here, and one of those layers is creating a fantasy construct where your your subject's friends have turned against him. Like that, that that is a twisted kind of logic. To use, and I'm not saying that in the real world that kind of logic hasn't been used to psychologically torture other people, but that is layer upon layer of psychological abuse on uh, on Bashir. From the technological end of it, yes, it takes an incredible amount of programming and sort of pre planning, like like three dimensional chess, you might say, uh, by Are trying to figure chess? out. That's played in three dimensions, John? Not two, but three in this case. Mm Three-dimensional chess that uh, Sloan has to think through in order to program these characters to interact with him, but also then to not give up the game to Bashir. That is very complex. Um, And since we are describing that as an insidious kind of psychological torture visited upon the good Dr. Bashir, that might be, I don't know. Look, this might be time for me to get on a soapbox, Norman. Oh, i uh waiting for this. Ap- <laughs> I've
1: been waiting for this for so long.
2: Look, uh, apologies in advance to you and maybe some of our listeners who are totally on board with this episode. But um, if you got a drink nearby, now is the time to pick it up. Uh, I know that there are many things about Section 31 that people like, and, and I know that Section 31, as of now, this is the beginning. It will become a bigger part and, and a, a consistent part of the overall Star Trek story. This episode, the induction of, uh, introduction of Section 31, makes me hate Section 31. And here's the thing. I think you should hate them too. When I say you, I mean all of you in the sound of my voice. Star Trek fans who have been watching all of Star Trek... Whichever series you picked up until this point should absolutely be as appalled as Julian is at what has just happened. If this were another series, think about it, Picard would have run them out of the room just like he did with Admiral Satie in the Drumhead, or Admiral Doherty in the movie Insurrection, or like Kirk did with Admiral Cartwright in Star Trek VI, or any of the many, many others. We could go on and on and on. And those are singular episodes or singular story arcs where the good guy dresses down the bad guy, and it is very obvious who that bad guy is in those cases and in this case. We're pulling for the hero in those cases to root out this insidious, boom, there's the word, Norman, there's the word, this insidious infection, which is a local one in Starfleet. And why? Why? Because our ideals are that important. This episode ends with Captain Sisko's concern, and everyone else's, it seems. They're on the same page with him. But we're given enough of a history and enough hints about what Section 31 is and how long it's been around and how pervasive it is. All of us should be Julian here. All of us, without doubt. And look, I I don't mean ever to lionize Gene Roddenberry or to slam producers of later Star Trek. A lot of points of view are valid, and exploring moral gray areas is an important task of Star Trek. What we have here is Star Trek... To me, just giving up. It's giving up on the idea that humans can succeed because they make good choices and work hard. It's giving up on the idea that we can improve ourselves and improve the institutions around us. It's a dark, defeatist attitude to have that we can only accomplish these things when we have an ugly, secret underbelly, when we sell out our ideals. Because otherwise, oh, it's just too hard. It might even be impossible. And if you come at me with that, I'm going to tell you that you're not trying hard enough. Just just apply that logic to any other institution that you care about that you think is worthwhile. Yes, at present, most of those are going to be flawed or full of flawed people. It doesn't mean that we have to accept it. Our streets were full of protesters last year because enough people were fed up with others who got a free pass when they broke the law and treated others inhumanely. And if you're so cynical to think that we can't even imagine a world where we don't tolerate those things, please, again, try harder.
1: I'm going to move this soapbox to the side here (laughs) because I'm not on a soapbox. But, John, I think that what you said was so eloquently put, I was riveted by everything. And I'm actually recording this with you. And if I were a listener, I would be riveted by it, too. I think that the question really is here with the introduction of Section 31 is that if we as Star Trek fans accept the fact that what Luther Stone did was legitimate to Dr. Bashir, for those people who do support that there is a Section 31 that needs to be part of the Federation, then what we're asking ourselves is, this is the algebra of it, folks. If Section 31 needs to exist, that means that the Federation and everything that it took to get to this point was built on an exemption that there was an organization there to do the dirtiest work. Yeah, That in and of itself, it creates an impurity at the source of what we're trying to achieve here in what we believe is Star Trek.
2: It, it's part of the charter. It's 200 years old. And even if we can all sit in a room and say what Sloan does specifically is wrong, what Sloan's ideals are specifically are wrong, it doesn't matter. Because according to him, there are so many other people in the organization, and those people are accepted and supported by the bigger organization, i.e. Starfleet, i.e. the Federation, as an umbrella to all of this, that at that point, all of their hands are dirty. They, they, It doesn't matter if you say, well, oh, just those few people do these dirty deeds. No, 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 no. Everybody who accepts that, who funds it, who supports it, who allows it to happen, they are complicit in all of that.
1: John, are you saying that those dirty deeds were not done dirt cheap? Is They're that not? I, I, I'm going
2: to say that, you know, even for a society without an actual uh, uh, money based on a system of <laughs> physical value, I'm going to say that they were not done dirt cheap. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, the, the, the caveat of all of this is that the Federation cannot be what it what it aims to be or cannot be hypocritical of other governments that say we are trying to create a benevolent utopian future but and remember the axiom forget everything that you heard after or before the word but but these people here are the reason why we have given them carte blanche authority to be able to remove warts and all all of the flaws That would prevent us from being this society So Where has it existed In Star Trek up until this point For the writers of this episode to believe That they had the right To create this organization For what purpose? To humanize What the future is going to be To humanize, and and when I say humanize I mean to add that Dirty characteristic of humanity Right? The imperfection Of humanity, the darkness of humanity So what is the point of getting past that in the eugenics wars, in the Third World War, in the wars of annihilation that led us to the point where we had to come together as United Earth to prevent our own annihilation?
2: Yeah, I, look, I, I never took Captain Picard as a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of guy. I never took Kirk as that kind of guy. So this, the, the insidious nature of this episode is that it undermines the core values of what's come up until now. That's 23 years worth of Star Trek, 200 years worth of its own uh, built-in, you know, in-universe narrative that says like, ah, you know what? We'll say that we have these values, but when push comes to shove, we're equally good at compromising those because sometimes the work is just too hard. Never once heard anything like that cross Picard's lips or Kirk's lips, or for that matter, Cisco's. And we'll just have to see how things play out with Cisco. But here we are at this point in this episode, and this is what we've landed with. I think
1: one of my issues is with this, the more I think about it is that why at this particular point in time in the Star Trek fandom did the creators of Deep Space Nine or the writers of this episode believe that they had to add this to the equation in order to create more drama within the series?
2: Yeah. You got a series full of drama, <laughs> right. great drama. And look, I, I can understand, you know, in its defense, Star Trek does have a history of the morale it has a history of corruption inside. But every single time we're introduced to that, it is a problem that gets rooted out. And then you're done with it. You know, if you want to go back to the end of the first season of Next Gen, Conspiracy. Well, those were aliens that were doing that, and that ended with a bunch of Remick head debris, cha-ching, all over the place. So that's fine, but you're done. You're done with that. And uh, like I said, when, when you're introduced to these other characters who come in and they mess things up, but then it takes somebody with integrity to recognize, oh, wait, they're not behaving the way that we truly Hold ourselves, that, that, that is uh, compatible with our true ideals, therefore they will either be corrected or they'll be gone. But we're not left with that here. We're, again, we're left with this impression that Sloan is a person of power, he's a person of tenure, and everything that he does and in the institution that he's a part of is fully accepted and sanctioned by others who do and should know better. But the, the biggest issue with that has been doing it for 200
1: years. since yep. the birth of the Federation. I think it would be different if that all of a sudden this guy comes in and says, yes, we, we're a new branch of Starfleet that takes care of these threats because the threats have now just become a little bit bigger than what we can handle. So we have to be a little bit more aggressive. But no, Sloan said that this was at the start of the Federation charter, which means that All of the progress that the Federation has made since the beginning of its charter to now has had them to thank for it. And and
2: in that time, in that 200 years, hasn't figured out a way to course correct, to have part of their institution that isn't corrupt or or amoral or immoral, however you want to look at it, haven't figured out how to correct that part of itself, Um, or even to bother to get rid of people who might be abusing that system. It would be one thing if, uh, as you're pointing out, Norman, if it was a new institution, a new office, and then we could figure out, well, should they stick around? Do they need a different kind of oversight? What's their job here? Or if it was something that was sort of, uh, you know, secret agent James Bond in space, fine. You might need some covert ops here and there, but they're actually held accountable to the ideals that we all say are the ideals of Star Trek. Right. And look, I, I I don't know, I'll, I'll get back on a soapbox here for a tiny second, which is to say that for every fan interview I've ever watched, for every interview with, with celebrities and Trek notables who have spoken eloquently about the importance and the meaning of Star Trek, what do they say? Like, look, even if they're sucked in by space battles and uh, emotional characters and they can identify with, they also always say, this is a show about aspiration and ideals about the future. It's about overcoming the worst parts of ourselves and aspiring to be the best of ourselves. And this episode comes along and says, like, I guess what? You can't get there unless you're also dirty and underhanded.
1: Yeah, and I think that uh, if we want to take exception with the the longevity of Section Thirty-One, it has now has been written into official canon because this is you know this is Deep Space Nine. This is an Mm -hmm. official series. That means that everything that you have to think about now, based uh, on the success of the Federation, you know, this utopian society, this progressive humanity that we have thought about ever since 1966, has all been retconned because of Mm -hmm. this idea, because they just inserted Section 31 into the entire history of the Federation, which means that somewhere along the line, if Kirk or if... Uh, Robert April, even, if you want to go all the way that far back, somewhere Mm -hmm. along the line, Section 31 was doing dirty work for the Federation. Yeah. They weren't going out there and exploring and trying and trying to push the the benefits of growing as humanity. Why? Because if we have a problem with someone, send Section 31 after them, let them clean up the mess, because someone in Utopia has to take out the trash.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, It cheapens the value of, of what we have seen in these other characters and, of, of course, the institution itself. let us uh, I have a feeling, Norman, we might even wrap up with some of these very thoughts, but let, let's move on just a little bit because I do want to talk about Sloan, and I'm trying to figure out my feelings about Sloan as a person, as a character. I mean, to me, he's... Is Lee's the right word? Maybe you he can help me out. He's an ideologue who is convinced that his actions are right no matter what. You know because the the ends justify the means for him, no matter what and and I get it to the extent that he is supposed to be the bad guy here, and you need a bad guy, and sometimes that guy comes from the inside. But what's troubling is that we're left again going back with this impression by his own words that he and his entire department are fine with doing things that are morally ambiguous, if not outright immoral. And they do it because they know it gets a pass because this is our way of accomplishing what we need to do. And nobody's going to tell us no. So here's right. how we'll handle it.
1: Yeah. I, I think uh, that Sloan's a very complex character. And I really think that we haven't uh, given Bill Sadler enough credit for how well he portrayed Sloan, the performance for Sloan. Cause yeah. I, I think it's uh he walked a really interesting tightrope at the beginning of Look, I'm on your side. I'm Starfleet Intelligence. So we bought into the fact that he's only doing his job, only to be subverted even further by, again, this insidious organization that basically admits they have carte blanche powers to be able to literally just wipe away the mistakes that, or the threats that, that, um, that may impact the Federation at one point or another. That's pretty broad based powers for any organization. That's, that's, That's too much, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't seem to mind that because that kind of authority is granted so much leeway and so much leverage and so much budget, Mm -hmm. right? They get the best technology. Obviously, they have technology that can hide transporter signatures, That's pretty advanced as far as we know. And I think we know later on from different incarnations of what we've seen that Section 31 is by far the most advanced, the most equipped, the most fitted out, kitted out Mm -hmm. organization you've ever seen in Star Trek. And if we have to believe that is true, why? Yeah. Because they have to do the dirty in order to keep Starfleet sterling. Yeah. That's well, the truth.
2: Yeah. And, and let's talk about some of that dirty work. Uh, let's see. Loyalty tests. Disgusting now. Disgusting in the 24th century. Uh, Section 31. Let's see. They're, they're cool with that. They're uh, Along with things like uh, surveilling their own people. Coercion. Psychological abuse. I mean, the, the episode is rife with it. Ooh, kidnapping. Kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but but hey, it's, it's all in the name of upholding Starfleet ideals. Which... And I know... Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I know that. Okay, so so Doctor Bashir's fans, obviously, when they watch this episode, they'll they'll decry Sloane and his methods, but there is a certain truth that that Sloane brings out about Bashir. Bashir has lied along the way throughout his entire career, and I wanted to make a point of this because these are the kind of people that Section Thirty-One is trying to recruit. In very many cases. Maybe people would see Bashir as being a sociopath, someone who is mm. so incredibly good at compartmentalizing their own truth that they don't really understand how subversive it is to the reality that they bring it to. Right. right. So think right. about exactly what happened when Julian dropped the genetically engineered bombshell like on all of his crewmen or all, his, all of his friends. They're like. Uh okay, now we have to think about you differently cuz you're literally now related to genetic superhumans like Khan. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, how am I supposed to feel about that now? Right? Yeah. Um the big issue with section 31, it's the uh the axiom of who watches the watchers. So, I like how Odo kind of almost uh, dismissively says, well, hey, every major power in the universe has their own kind of Section 31. You have the Tal Shiar, of which we've been in- introduced to. We've had the Obsidian Order, which we've been introduced to. So why is it a big deal to him that a Section 31 exists? And I do think that there's this unanswerable question that Bashir asks, and I don't have the answer for it, John. I don't know if you do. I don't know if our listeners do. I don't know if there is one. Mm-hmm. But Bashir asks, what does that say about us? When push comes to shove, are we willing to sacrifice our principles in order to survive? And the Federation is, again, if in fact that we believe this is Section 31, the Federation is willing to sacrifice the principles if they remain invisible. Yeah. Right? If they remain in skeletons in a very deep closet buried under a very deep crater, as long as they remain there, the Federation's reputation is intact but it's the sheer nature of their existence now that puts that reputation at risk
0: is this just a wartime thing or does section 31 do this kind of loyalty test to every federation citizen one by one i want to know how barclay did
1: Well, the Inquisition, John, is here, and it definitely is here to stay, because we have had a brilliant discussion, I think, about this episode, and I think that we are going to really dig in now and see if, one, if the episode does hold up, still holds up, and two, what are the morals and meanings and messages that we've been able to surmise based on everything that we've already deliberated so far and more so let us start with you
2: uh so we always start the section by asking if the episode holds up you know and and the difficulty in addressing that part of it is you're asking if the episode on its own stands up, like how is it produced and how is the story told? And that's the subjective thing. And we got to make our own rules here in this section. You know, it's not a, we're not like judging it on a particular scale. And, And the other part of the difficulty is we're also asking, how does it hold up as part of the piece of the bigger puzzle? You know, and I think we've, we've, hit this episode here where 23 years into Star Trek's history um we're we're at this place where uh, Oh, no I'm sorry it's more than 23 I, I'm thinking about from now looking backwards we're 23 years past this episode right this is uh, uh this is 27 years into Star Trek where now they've decided to rewrite the history of Star Trek so We're also asking ourselves if it stands up as a piece of Star Trek where it falls in the overall uh, series. And I'm of two minds, because I'll say this just to address whether or not the episode holds up, that despite my rant previously, and I apologize if you're still maybe trying to work on that drink to get you through it, this is a great episode. (laughs) The twists the use of the holodeck, keeping Bashir off of his game, uh, the, the strength of our guest actor, William Sadler, it keeps you guessing and the details are wonderful. It's well-written. It's well-produced. I think it's necessary to watch uh, just as a piece of your overall picture of Star Trek and especially as your overall picture and understanding of Deep Space Nine. This is a necessary episode. And I would also say that it's necessary to talk about it afterward. Because I think you you really do need to sort of pick it apart and have a back and forth like we get to have here to ask, well, what did they really accomplish here? What does it say about the Star Trek universe? What does it say about these characters? Uh, because my question posed during that conversation would be, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> that's that's my question after seeing this episode. What the hell are we doing to Star Trek Within this episode, part of me really does see this as a slap in the face to the people who watch Star Trek for the 20 plus plus years before this episode came out. It it, it says, in essence, that Starfleet and the Federation that you cheered on as being the standard bearer for how humans have advanced and that gave people like Kirk and Picard the moral authority to go out and to help others? Yeah, it's all based on lies, because operationally, it's coming from a place of deceit and dirty deeds. We aren't actually better than the secret police or black ops of the 20th century. So, thanks for watching Star Trek. See ya! Dirty deeds again, John. Done. Latinum cheap. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you, you know, for me, um, in, in all honesty, I, I said some of my piece earlier on in this episode, but despite how morally dark and grim this episode is, in terms of how it, it challenged me, because it did, it still does, right up to this point, it, I think it tried to gaslight me in a lot of ways. I'm going to use that term on occasion mm. here towards the end. I think that this is an incredible episode, as you said, for all the points that you said. And it's definitely worthy of note. It's definitely one to watch on occasion, if only to remind us that this is a turning point in the Star Trek narrative, and one that I am not sure if I personally agree with in how it changes the narrative. Now, in no doubt... And in many circumstances, we have seen the influence of how the Star Trek fandom has embraced a more modern, more cynical, darker toned a little bit more embittered version of the future. And we've seen that in the newer incarnations of Star Trek, especially in Discovery and Picard, just kind of like the aesthetic, maybe some of the tonal uh, messages and beats of those series. But if we put that aside from now, or for now, and just focus on, you know, the merits of this episode, I think that this episode is superbly acted. I think it's well paced. I think it's well written. Uh, I think the characters are crafted well. But again, going back to why I think that there is an issue here, it sets a tone that I have not yet seen in Star Trek, where I question, why is this organization necessary to have in Starfleet at all? Mm -hmm. The way that Bashir asks that question at the end. But I also think that in many ways, I think that this story is necessary to push our expectations out of their comfort zones that we've been used to in Star Trek to promote some growth. Growth isn't always necessarily easy or acceptable. Many times it's painful, But it also causes some wonderful things to happen. Some incredible challenge to be met. And maybe that's why this particular story is being told now. Star Trek at this stage of its evolution was... It was reaching a very good cruise control point. It was very well produced. I think that the fans understood what they were to expect. Everything was above board but you just need that little bit of a catalyst to push it forward a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that is uncomfortable. But at the same time, though, I think if it's handled right, maybe in subsequent episodes or maybe in season seven, we'll see this tone take on a reason for being started here. Maybe. That's the optimist in me. The reality mm-hmm. is that I'm not the biggest <laughs> fan of a clandestine organization in my Star Trek.
2: But uh, By the way, I, I, no letters, please. But yeah, this is in Star Trek's 32nd year. So the, 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 this came out in 1998. So uh, I had it wrong in my notes. By the way, John, but, I did forget something.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Morals meetings, the, the rob up here. But yeah, yeah, so think about it this way. Think about it this way. Sloan's speech to Bashir in the holodeck can be easily rewritten into Colonel Jessup's speech in A Few Good Men at the end. So imagine Sloan saying this to Captain Sisko. I've rewritten this for context. Yeah. I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Bashir, and you curse Section 31. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Bashir's interrogation, while unfortunate, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. That's very much what's at play here.
2: It, it, absolutely. All right. So th- that then brings us to morals, meanings, messages, or, or a message or multiple messages. What did you get here?
1: All right. So I'm going to borrow your soapbox now.
2: Okay, So please. if
1: you finish that first beverage, pour yourself a second yeah. beverage. Okay. <laughs> Does the end justify the means? That's an axiom of axioms, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's pretty clear, cut and dry, folded, pressed, starched, ironed, that this episode is about introducing us, the audience, to a darker side of the Federation and perhaps even a more realistic side. For the longest time, we as Star Trek fans have believed in a Federation that has governed itself on the highest principles of humanity, respect for life, tolerance, charity, inclusion, diplomacy, understanding just to name a few is this the reality of the future the visionary future that gene roddenberry dreamed that someday may become a reality isn't that what we as the audience that believes in the underlying principles of star trek not only as a show but as a way to find a more enlightened and nobler path Towards our future Or am I just being naive About what I've been watching This entire time As someone whose life Has been uniquely inspired By Star Trek In countless ways Until this particular episode Or Let me put it another way Is this episode Doing exactly to us What Sloan had been doing To Bashir Gaslighting us Or am I being irresponsible In speaking for the whole Of this audience Because I think this episode Has been gaslighting me into believing that there is and needs to be a clandestine organization within Starfleet and within the Federation that has been chartered to protect us from the very dangers that threaten the mission of the Federation, enemies from, without, and within. And perhaps it's Section 31's case, we'll never know. But the terrifying reality is that aside from interpreting the Federation charter that made allowances for Section 31, who gave that initial organization not only the right but the responsibility to make those decisions on behalf of those they're sworn to protect. According to who? And according to Mm. why? Who gives someone that right? And are we sure that all of those who are charged with upholding that order are 100% beyond reproach as well? But the most unsettling thing, John, for me about this episode is that it asks all of us in the fandom of Star Trek and the fans of Deep Space Nine in particular... Do we accept that no matter how far humanity has come, no matter how advanced humanity has progressed, are we still so far from the goal? Are we still so short-sighted, so undeniably human, that we need an organization like Section 31 to carry out our darkest and most questionable means to achieving certain ends, so that our leaders for humanity, from Starfleet to the highest office of the Federation, can keep their hands clean from the controversy of the decisions that fly in the face of where we are as the human race in the future. I'm going to quote Khan here from Space Seed to, to wrap up my, uh, my response here. Mm-hmm. Khan said to Kirk, I am surprised how little improvement there has been in human evolution. Oh, there has been technological advancement, but how little man himself has changed.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with you 100%. And, and I, I'm thinking that I will follow up your con quotation with a Kirk quotation, because I'm thinking that Kirk is somebody that this Section 31 needs to hear, and maybe the higher-ups of the Federation need to hear, because I believe it was James Kirk who said, we could admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. That's all it takes, knowing that we won't kill today. So I would say that his personal localized uh, uh, statement that that he made in uh, A Taste of Armageddon, that's the kind of thing that those others at the Federation should have heard to say, yeah, we have these darker impulses. We are sometimes compelled to think that we have to do the wrong thing in order to win the day, in order to get the outcome that we want. But we can actually choose not to do that. And... 200 years ago, somebody writing the Federation Charter didn't realize that they could choose not to do that. And in the 200 years since then, other higher-ups of the Federation didn't realize that they could choose to not continue to fund or allow the the access or the means that this organization has. So when I look at this episode and I try to look for a message, uh, it's not a message that I want to honor or say that it's uh, uh, worthy of our aspirations. It's the message that for every institution that does good, you just have to accept that they're doing that with the help and consent of a morally dubious group of people who will underhandedly do the dirty work, there it is again, because nobody else can figure out a solution. And I certainly don't want to celebrate that message. But this is the beginning of our time with section 31. So if the message here is that we should be like Bashir and Cisco and the others to some extent, and we should be horrified and try to eradicate this for good, then sure, that's a perfectly fine message. I'll go with that. The message that says that, oh, we still have things we need to clean up. We aren't quite living up to the ideal that we say. Let's fix that. And Bashir says it. You, you already read it, Norman, but I'll, I'll read it again. What would they say about us? When push comes to shove, they were willing to sacrifice our principles in order to survive. Y- yeah. Yeah, they would say that and they would be right, Dr. Bashir. We'll use a cloaked ship because, hey, our mission is more dangerous this time. Or we'll use biological weapons because, well, this was a tricky situation. Again, apply that To whatever institution of human endeavor that you hold near and dear to your heart. And just keep chipping away. Just keep chipping away at what's acceptable. Until that institution, those ideals, those morals, bear no resemblance to the thing you think it actually stands for. The point isn't to ignore it and pretend like those things are a necessary evil. The whole point is to point it out so we can take steps, even the small ones, to be better so i hope that this episode is a warning about bureaucracy run amok and the frightening idea of institutions acting solely on the premise that the ends justify the means they don't and they never should and now is star trek just going to leave us with that message and then write itself or are we going to have to accept that that's just the way it is in our future because we can't see our way out of our narrow, destructive vision of ourselves.
1: Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion be sure to visit trekmovie.com.
2: On the next Mission Log, In the Pale Moonlight.
0: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. Don't tell John and Norman, but I think Section 31 has them scheduled for this weekend. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry Podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com. Pulling up
1: to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.